0: It was so strange, because, like, the stamp book was the only... That was the only uh, thing that I had on a schedule. Like, I had to be at a temple before it closed so I could get the stamp book so I could move on. If I didn't get to the temple in time, I'd have to camp somewhere around there and then wake up the next morning. But, yeah, once I finished, I don't know, I can't remember if I wrote it down. But like when I was leafing through, I literally could see the faces of each person who'd signed the book.
1: Welcome to the Hiking Through podcast, where we get to pull up a seat at the campfire and have a conversation about all things through hiking. I'm Erin Egan, and today's guest is Snake Eyes known off-trail as Paul Barak. He has hiked a few trails in his day, but the Shikoku Pilgrimage Trail is where it all started. A 750-mile trail visiting 88 temples, it encircles Shikoku Island in Japan and follows the travels of Kukai, an 8th-century Shingon Buddhist monk. In Paul's book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, he tells the story of his 2010 pilgrimage. The Shikoku Trail is most definitely on my bucket list. In this episode, we talk about the struggle to be here now, not defining your journey while you're still on it, the weight of history, and Kid cats. You can find this episode at hiking-through.com, as well as on our brand new Hiking Through channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Snake Eyes. Well, Paul, welcome to the podcast. I'm really actually excited to talk to you because reading your book, I was like, ooh, you know, this is something that I could totally get behind doing." You know, i I had my ninja phase. Back in my teenage years, <laughs> oh yeah,
0: <laughs> like all cool people.
1: <laughs> so, like, I started reading your book, um, "Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains," uh, which is brand new published, right?
0: Uh, published a couple of years ago.
1: Oh, okay, well, it, it's brand new published for me, <laughs> for my purposes. <laughs> um, but I started reading it, and I was like, "This is incredible! That I've never heard of this before." <laughs> So I have a feeling that most of the people who are listening to this podcast are probably the same. Like they've never heard of it.
0: Don't feel alone there. Uh, Even when like it's said that more Japanese people have been to Paris than have been to Shikoku Island. And um, when I flew out to Japan, I was staying with uh, these two friends of mine from my karate dojo back in Seattle, who would moved back to Japan and, uh, One of them was just like asking me like, how did you hear about this? Because like I was telling my friends about you and that you were about to go do this hike and they've never heard of it. So like, how did you like come across this idea?
1: Yeah, so tell us. And also like, can you explain a little bit what the Shikoku Trail slash pilgrimage is uh, for the purposes of everybody listening?
0: Of course um so the Shikoku pilgrimage is this um 12 to 1300 year old pilgrimage that uh is part of the Shingon Buddhist sect uh the founder of Shingon Buddhism is uh named Kukai or Kobo Daishi he was a uh <clears throat> a monk from the 8th uh 8th century just very famous in Japan he Has a really interesting history. Uh, He was the founder of Shingon Buddhism. He was an ambassador to China. He uh, was responsible for a bunch of like public works projects. Like there's still a levee uh, in Japan that he built, but he also is just this man of legend who's like, you know, out there not only attaining enlightenment, but also like punching dragons and, you know, (laughs) kicking ghosts out of, uh, kicking ghosts out of temples so uh historically he's uh kind of an everyman you could say (laughs) he's almost like the
1: renaissance man or the um what is it like the ben franklin like he sort of did it all definitely
0: yeah yeah there there should be a cartoon with him and a little mouse friend that should be made (laughs) um But so the Shikoku pilgrimage itself is the 750 mile pilgrimage that starts on from the first temple uh, of Japan's smallest and most rural of the main islands, Shikoku, which literally means for region, Shi, for Koku, region. And the pilgrimage from Temple One travels clockwise around the island visiting these 88 temples that dot the uh, perimeter. And some of these temples are on, you know, a cliffside. Some of them are on mountaintops. Some of them are in forests. Some are in the center of rice fields. Some are in the center of towns. So it's this very uh, varied pilgrimage with this uh, super fascinating history that's full of legend and some monsters uh, which I always find fascinating, and it uh, the four regions also uh, correspond to the four levels of spiritual enlightenment of a pilgrim. So Tokushima, the first region, is the land of awakening faith. Uh, Kochi, the second region, is the land of ascetic training. That's the hardest one, obviously. Uh, and then Ihime is the land of enlightenment and uh, Kagawa is the land of Nirvana. And what I think is one of the coolest things about the pilgrimage is that it's circular. And so after you finished at Temple 88 and are in the land of Nirvana, you travel back to Temple 1 to officially finish your pilgrimage because your spiritual journey is never over.
1: Right. And as part of... Is this something that you put into your pilgrimage or is this an accepted practice? Because you talk about coming back to number one at the end and having to account for your pilgrimage and talk to, to Koku about uh no what is this what is the yeah, it's kukai. Kukai. To talk to kukai about what you've learned or what you've uh achieved through this pilgrimage.
0: Um so that is Not just me. That's a traditional part, which is another just super cool thing about the pilgrimage. Uh, that's not actually a temple one. So after the pilgrimage, you return back to the main island and go to Mount Koya, which is the, where the, you know, the main Shingon Buddhist temple is. Uh, and also it's a UNESCO heritage site because to get there, you walk through this ancient, uh, graveyard where there's like peasants and princes and ceos all buried there some uh, gravestones are like moss covered and bent and you know falling over and you know over a thousand years old some of them are modern some of them are small some of them are ornate and they're all in the shadows of these beautiful redwood cedars and mm. from there you walk to the lantern temple, say your prayers there, and then behind the lantern temple is the mausoleum of Kukai, where he rests in eternal meditation. And traditionally, either before your pilgrimage or after, you go to visit Kukai. Uh, If you go before, it's to ask permission and for luck on the pilgrimage. And if you go after, you're supposed to report to him how the pilgrimage went. Okay. Yeah, it's wow! It's so rad.
1: <laughs> well, what was so funny to me is you do this amazing thing, which is very not well known. And your explanation in the book and probably to people who ask you is, I'm here because on a random day in a class, I chose because of ninjas. I saw myself in Shikoku and eight years later, hated my job enough to follow through. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Life gets weird, man.
1: It doesn't get more random than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yet it all makes sense once you both read the book and also just, I don't know. I feel like that's how life goes a lot of the time. I mean, uh, but yeah, it was a journey that I was not prepared for in any way. Uh, As I say in the book, the only Japanese I spoke was water. (laughs) Thank you. And I knew two ways to express disbelief. A monster was attacking. Uh, Helpful helpful phrases. Oh yeah. Yeah. Look, if the second a Kaiju stopped down on the city, I was ready. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was uh, this draw that I've always had. For Japan, you know, starting when I was young and I was like, oh man, there's a, there's a land that produces, you know, like karate masters dressed in black with throwing stars who can disappear, sign me up. And, you know, then I got a little older and I was like, ah, you know what, maybe, maybe ninjas aren't exactly real and don't live in the sewer eating pizza. Uh, (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. You know historically it's up for debate exactly but but i still was so fascinated with the culture it got me into zen buddhism it got me into martial arts and karate which i became a black belt and it's got me to this class in college called japanese religion and culture where i was just sort of on a whim decided like, yeah, you know what? They'll teach at least least one week. It'll probably be about ninjas because I'm sure everyone's as fascinated with them as me. And, uh, you know, easy B. Uh, And of course I was disappointed in the same way Mm -hmm. I was when Jewish mysticism didn't teach me how to make a mud golem, which I'm still bummed about a little, Um, Uh. but you know, in one of these days, The teacher rolled out this, rolled out the television and put in a VHS tape because I am. Those were the days. I'm very 38 right now. And uh, there was this documentary on the Shikoku pilgrimage that I'd never heard of. And I see the narrator, you know, walking with his round conical hat, and that, you know, is traditional if you're working in a rice field. Uh, and this white vest and this staff, you know, by these enormous rice fields and were backed by mountains and meditating beneath waterfalls and praying in these ancient temples. And in just this weird little flash that I remember, but is one of those things where it's like, I'm not sure if it was real. I saw myself on that screen just doing Hmm. the same thing, walking by those rice fields, praying at those temples, meditating under a waterfall. And just in my head, I was like, I'm going to do that. And then eight years later, I was working a job at a software company as an office manager, I don't have any useful skills. (laughs) And, And I was just I kind of keyed into this place through luck, where I had a future. You know, I didn't like it. I woke up sighing every day. But if I just stuck with it, I had a way to make money for the rest of my life. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? I've had this pretty cool life. I've traveled a bit. I guess I just get to be sad and make money for the rest of my life. This will be cool. Something to look forward to. Yeah, you know, that's... uh, (laughs) that's your that's your late 20s I guess um but and then I just had this moment where I was like no 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 one more thing you know just one more hit of adventure and then you know then I can quit and be totally happy being sad for the rest of my life and I was like what do I want to do and that vision came back and I said of course the Shikoku pilgrimage of course yeah and uh i I did not say, of course, I guess I'll learn to read a map or, or uh, learn
1: Japanese
0: or learn Japanese or see if my shoes fit or <laughs> oh, your shoes. check if it's the oh my God, the shoes <laughs> or if it was check if it was the hottest summer on record um but you know when you're young and dumb or in your late twenties and dumb you can uh you can do a lot
1: yeah you ignorance is bliss really is. And then once you get over there and you start, it's sort of like,
0: well, I'm here. I might as well see how this goes. Yeah. And it did not go well.
1: Well, it it felt like it was sort of this seesaw.
0: Yeah. And I know that's
1: between the days that completely sucked and the shoes that completely sucked uh, the worst. And these days where you were, your, your mantra for the whole thing was be here now yep which I think is whether you're talking about a through hike in the states or you're talking about like the Camino or you're talking about any of these longer paths shall we call them mm. is the is the challenge like can you be here now
0: yeah and I mean I think that being unprepared and having the pilgrimage be so hard. Like it was, so the third day I was, you know, collapsing from dehydration for six hours, going up this mountain, you know, called burning mountain, uh, just falling, getting up, walking 50 more steps, falling and thinking like I might pass out here. I might have to be evacuated. I might die. I'm not certain because I've never felt this bad before in my life. And I was what I thought in shape. But as you and your listeners probably know, the gulf between being in athletic shape and being in through hiking shape is vast. Yes. And so I was falling and getting up. But that also was the first moment where I was like, I'm going to finish this. I don't care if I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how scared I am. I will commit to this and I will finish this. And I mean, part of that was, you know, a growing sense of just willpower. And part of it was not wanting to go home after day three and have people be like, how was the pilgrimage? And It was like, it was hot one day. And I was just like, I don't like this. (laughs) And so, yeah, just that burning mountain, I like I've hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and burning mountain is still the hardest thing I've ever done in my life physically. Um, but yeah, it was moments like that, it was the shoes not fitting and having to come to terms with the fact that, even though my feet hurt, literally every step I took, I still had to come to peace with that struggle, and be able to say yes this is part of the journey. Instead of what I think, unfortunately, a lot of people do when they're on their first through hike, and they just focus on the difficulties and start spiraling and saying, I'm not having fun. What's the point of being here? What else could I be doing? And I've never heard of anyone leaving the trail, whether it was the Colorado Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, whichever journey you go on, leaving and then saying, that was the right decision. Like, I'm really happy I didn't complete that thing. So, yeah, just the the ability to be in the moment and also accept that the moment sucked, but know that that was part of it, is what kind of opened me up to experiencing the incredible parts of the pilgrimage. And I feel like that balance was a big part of my journey and a big part of, like, Lessons I took away, you know, one of them uh was I that I think is still something I tell people to this day is don't define your journey while you're still on it. Yeah. And that was that realization and month and another mantra I had really is what saved me during the pilgrimage because I could have at any day said this is not what I wanted. This sucks. I'm, you know, it's way harder than I thought. And, you know, that would have been what I'd focused on instead of constantly looking up and saying, okay, what is this then? And what is this giving me today?
1: And what, what did you find that answer to be when you're asking that question? What is this giving me today?
0: Um. So many things, you know, some days it was a lesson. you know, some days it was the lesson, you know, the worst case scenario is not the only scenario. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're hiding out from guards in a toilet stall all night because because yeah. basically because I'm dumb. Uh,
1: we will speak about the sleeping situation out yeah. <laughs> there because that was wacky.
0: <laughs> um, and some other less some other times like, you know, it was taking a moment looking at this rice field that had been overturned and seeing these metallic red dragonflies just glittering in sunset and having this moment of realization that I was a continuation of a pilgrimage. I was a hen rub. I was one of many who'd stood there on that moment at that time, looking out at something like that and just feeling fortunate and lucky for what I was given. And, you know, just gratitude gratitude for a gifted, uh, Asian pair. When I was hungry, gratitude for, uh, a place to sleep when it was raining out and sometimes just looking at the ocean and seeing the beauty of ancient Japan in the modern day. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that was, that was the balance and that was a lot of the lessons that I had to take away, which have stuck with me not every day, but that's not how lessons work, I think. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, more than less. And have helped me out through a lot of other journeys and a lot of other times in my life.
1: Well, and as part of the pilgrimage to each temple that you came to, there was a process. There was a practice that you had to do each time.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you
1: talk about that a little?
0: Sure. Um, So the basic. uh, There's a set series of prayers. Uh, as you enter every temple, uh, the prayers are there to announce your intention to praise, uh, the Buddha in whatever deity is at the temple, because there's different, uh, dip, a Buddha is just a reincarnated being. Like there's the historical Buddha who was an Indian prince, right. but then there's other bodhisattvas and Buddhas and other members of the pantheon. So each temple is built to one of those members of the pantheon, in the same way that like all Catholic temples are built for Jesus and Mary and God, but there's also a patron saint. Right. So in that same way, there's a patron uh, bodhisattva. Buddha. Yeah. Um, so you walk in, you uh, announce your intention to pray to the Buddha. You pray to the Buddha. You pray that all beings achieve enlightenment, and then you recite the Heart Sutra. Uh, which is the sutra that's the basis, the heart, of the Buddhist teaching, which is that emptiness is form and form is emptiness. Um, And I actually, if you'd like, can go through the prayers right now. Yeah, please. Sure. Uh, So the prayers were all written phonetically in the map book, which you can order from shikokuhenrotrail.com, which is an invaluable resource for anyone who's planning to do the pilgrimage um and if any of your listeners are japanese or speak japanese i am so sorry <laughs> for my pronunciation i uh i do apologize so uh mihotoke toke tematsuri Yashiku, Miotoke toke, Ure Matsuru Mujo, Jinjin, Mimioho, Yakusenman, Ganan, Sogu, Gakon, Kemotoku, Juji, Gagen, Yorai, Shinjitsugi <laughs> Kanji, Zaibo, Satsu, Gyojin, Hanyahara, Mita, Ji, Shoken, Go, Un, Kaiku, Do, Isaiku, Yakushari, Shikifu, Ikuku, Fu, Ishiki, Shikizokuzeku kuso ju so gyo yakubo ze kuso Fusho, fu fuku muju mugen mushiki shoko mugen kai mu 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 jin mu yaku mu toku imu mu ko bodai sata i han hara ko shin kufu onri ko mu u ku fu on san se i ko toku anokutara san yaku san bodai ko chi Zendai jin shu, zei Zemu shu, Zemu mu jo todo shu, no jo isai ku, shinjutsu ko setu hanyah haramita shu. gate gate watu gyate gyate, hara gyate, hara so gyate, boji sawaka hanyah shingyo. Onabokya shano makabo makabodaramani handama jimbara harabarita ya un. Onabokya, beroshano shano, maka bo daramani, Onabokya, beroshano shano, maka bo daramani, handoma, Namu daishi, henjo kongo, namu daishi, henjo kongo, namu daishi, henjo kongo. Ganishi, kudoku, o isai, gato, yo, shujo, kaigujo, butadou. Arigato and, and thank you, <laughs> thank you, and uh, that is the prayers that I would recite uh, eighty-eight times twice at each eighty-eight yeah. at each of the eighty-eight temples.
1: And what is that? If you were to summarize that up, what would that? What is the the essence of the the sutra?
0: The essence sutra. of the well, the essence of the sutra itself is that the Buddha recognized that the basis of all the basis of every that is, is everything that is not. So once right, you so. empty yourself of your own ego, you find that that emptiness is form. So you are one with everything. Okay. Is sort of the basis of it. Uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh, who I, have started reading a lot of um sort of puts it as you're not you're not nothing but the idea is that you are everything is a different form of the same thing so to put it as um uh oh man i can't remember his name the the british buddhist um forgot his name but anyway, so to sort of put it another way, uh, if you look at, if you are sitting by a river and you see a little whirlpool in the river, you would identify that whirlpool as a whirlpool. Mm-hmm. But that whirlpool is just water in motion. It's just moving through. And the whirlpool itself is not really at any point, or it's not a set thing. Right. It's not the whirlpool. The water that makes up the whirlpool is not the same at any moment. It's constantly changing and constantly flowing through. And so everything you see is like that. There's an impermanence that everything you see is just matter taking a diff- taking a little shape for a moment. Got it. Yeah, and, and, and then, I probably butchered half of that, so I'm sorry. But it, it I makes sense in someone else's head. Yeah,
1: I get the essence. And yeah. then the the prayer itself that you just read is, I, I guess I'm not even going to assume what it what it is. So the prayer itself is what? How does that play into all of that? So Do you have prayer- an actual translation?
0: <laughs> oh. Um, of the Heart Sutra. Yeah. I mean, I could look it up, but to be honest, uh, how it plays in is you start with you start with the uh, the prayer that says, "I've come to worship the Buddha." After that, you basically you say that you're going to start reciting prayers to worship the Buddha, and then it's the Heart Sutra, which is just a universal Buddhist sutra about uh, the oneness of reality. After that, it's prayers to whatever deity and then Kobo Daishi. Um, And then the wish that all of your good deeds can spread to everything in the world. So when I was reciting those prayers, I kind of it felt very much just like recitation to me, you know, yeah. be it, growing up uh, Jewish. I was very used to saying things I didn't know the meaning of in a different language, uh, you know, twice a year because we were a form. Uh, but the, so part of the pilgrimage for me was trying to find a meaning in a recitation that was just another part of a ritual. And for me, it was both, like at the start, I figured out, okay, you know what, at the end of every prayer, I'm going to keep someone in mind, like a friend of mine, who I want good things for. And so I'll be saying the prayers to them. Uh, But by the end of the pilgrimage, um, saying the prayers really became another way for me to give back to shikoku um which was something that kind of it came about gradually but it mostly came about at the end of the land of ascetic training as we said before like my shoes hurt every day and it was incredibly difficult to walk it's boring a lot of the time like sometimes you're seeing amazing stuff sometimes you're just bored and it's too hot and because I didn't bring music or any distraction, I was there every moment. Right. And not every moment's the best. And there's a lot of road walking there's as part of this. 90% of it, yeah. Like it's road walking, and cars are driving by, and it's not great. So, but at the land of at the end of the land of ascetic training, I sort of decided that every time I went to a temple. I wasn't just going to say the prayers and give, uh, give my name slip and some coins as the offerings. I was offering the pain I was in. I was offering the boredom and the strain and everything, and giving that back to Shikoku, and investing myself in Shikoku rather than simply saying, "What am I getting from this every day?" And so. I think saying the prayers was kind of cool by the end because it is cool to have that ritual uh, mm-hmm. and to feel like you're a part of, you know, this much larger thing. But it also was a way of me showing respect and saying, look, I don't know what I'm going to get out of this. Uh, I don't know if this is going to get easier, but I'm here and I'm here to respect what I'm doing. And so that kind of was what the prayers meant for me, was I'm here to pay respect to what this is and how important this is.
1: Right. Because doing it as a hike or as a walk is not the only way to do it.
0: No, you, I mean, what do you mean? Well, there was
1: the bus or buses, Uh, as the case may be.
0: Yes. So most people uh, are who do it are retirees because they have the time. And so they pay, I don't know, I think it was like two, three thousand, two, three thousand dollars. And they hop on a bus and every and, you know, the bus drives them from temple to temple in air conditioned comfort. And they get out. They're led through the prayers by the priest of the temple. And then they get their signatures and they go. Uh, you can also do it by bicycle, but the walking hen row are the most respected, and they're the ones that everyone's like, "You're you're the true deal." And then,
1: the true true deal for the people who take it to that extra degree are the people who do it repeatedly, or repeatedly, and or then do it uh, in reverse or counterclockwise and stuff like that. And then you did at one point meet. I guess, towards the end, a man who had done it many, many, many times.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So as you so one of the things that you bring along on the pilgrimage are these white slips called Osama Fuda. And the white slips are for you write your name down on them and you uh, you and they're part of your offering at every temple. But or you give them to people who've done you a favor. Uh, which is called Osetai, and Osetai is uh, sort of an offering to both you and Kukai, who travels beside you. Um, the first five times that you circle the island, you use a white name slip, but after that, it moves on to, I believe, a green one, uh, and then moves on to red. And by the time you've done it over a hundred times, it's the it's called a brocade name slip. And it's like this decorated uh, kind of felt that actually I think I have in this book. Uh, Do I? Um, Oh, I'm hoping so. Oh man, it's in one of them. Let me see if I can... See if I remember where it is. This is great video, by the way. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> do we have success? We do.
1: Oh wow!
0: So let's. Yeah, if I can just get the, the color red- right.
1: Yep. Yeah. Like. Okay. Wow. So. That's amazing. Yeah. Let That's me. Incredible. There
0: we go. Yeah. So this is what you get for doing it over a hundred times. And these are considered like incredibly valuable, like spiritually. And people like will try to open up the donation boxes, uh, at each temple and see if they can find one of these. And I was just given it out of respect, uh, for, from this person who clearly done it a hundred times and it was very important to him. Uh, And he, you know, just uh, thought that it was pretty great that a Westerner had come and devoted themselves to doing it.
1: Right. To get, because to get those, the brocade versions, it's not like you just say that you've done it a hundred times and you order it online and you do whatever, like you have to actually go through a process. It's almost a little bit like getting your, PCT medal or whatever. Like you have to show proof that you've done it.
0: Yeah, and they keep uh, records uh, when you complete the when you complete the uh, Shikoku pilgrimage. Your name goes in a book at Temple One. And so, yeah, they they have the list. You write down where you're from. You write down how many days it took you and your name. It's incredible. Yeah,
1: I, I can only imagine that feeling. I mean, because. This was towards the end of the trip for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, as you've kind of alluded to, it's been a struggle on on many different fronts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But by that point, you're truly appreciating the pilgrimage that you are on. And to run into this man who then offers you this, this gift really is what it was. I can't even imagine the feeling in that moment.
0: It felt big. Um, And I think like everything on the pilgrimage, it was so much bigger in retrospect because at the time, everything is so scrambled, you know, every, every Mm -hmm. you're not on survival mode, but you're just on, Oh God, what's coming next. (laughs)
1: Sounds like every through hike and pilgrimage and, and whatever.
0: Exactly, But yeah, it was, it was big. It was a big, like, Oh, I've met, um, I've met someone who's telling me like, yeah, you uh, you're doing it. You're, you, you're doing it. You're doing it right. Which um, to not compare, but I don't know, just something I thought I was thinking of recently. Um, the, the, shikoku henro uh website uh, is was run by a guy named david turkington who i sent a copy of my book when i finished it and he gave it a positive review which meant a lot to me because you know when when you write something about something like the pilgrimage you want to do it justice and it is kind of a relief to know like okay cool i uh the the main guy says, not bad. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's... And, th- and that's uh, the thing about the Shikoku pilgrimage. You know, you meet uh, so many friendly people and so many people who are just wishing the best for you because they all know how difficult it is, and it's all very important. It's kind of... It's like on the Pacific Crest Trail when you meet the trail angels who've done it before and they're just so pumped for you and they just want to give you advice and just want to tell you like, yeah, you're, you're, I hope you're having the time of your life today. And yeah, it just, it feels, you feel a part of something. Could you feel that? Could you, I mean,
1: because it's one thing like on the Pacific Crest trail or the trails in the States, like they're fairly young in the scope of things. Um, But could you feel the weight of the history of Shikoku's pilgrimage and trail while you're doing it? Or was that more something that kind of in retrospect, you really take in?
0: It's there in pockets. Um, You know, some, when you're at a temple that's, you know, like uh, over a thousand years old, I mean, the, the, basically, the location—they've replaced all the wood at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're just—you're looking at something that's old, you know, three times older than your country. And there is that feeling of like some so many people have been here doing what I'm doing, you know, like uh, like I was talking about seeing those dragonflies, or when, like. They're bamboo drying racks for rice. And when you walk by a rice field, like a lot of it's automated. A lot of people are driving threshers that look like gigantic hair trimmers on wheels. (laughs) But there's also these bamboo drying racks. And you see the drying rack and you see the field and you see the, the bamboo and the mountains behind it. And you just see an unbroken history. Like, this is how it was. It doesn't matter that, you know, the they're threshing the rice with, you know, uh, a gas-powered thresher instead of, like, nunchucks or whatever they used. Um, but you're also seeing, like, oh, my God, this was, this has been here forever. And that's, yeah, it, it's a certain weight. And that's also, like, one of the things about reciting the prayers that you eventually realize is these are old words like, you know, reciting the heart sutra, that is an old, old text. And you're standing where hundreds of thousands, if not more have stood beside, have stood, and you're saying what they've said and you're joining in to, you're joining into something that I think, um, I don't know. It, it's there. I believe that there is a spiritual energy that gets put out and stays in some of these temples. And um, definitely, you know, even if it's not quantifiable by any scientific means, it does feel like you're entering into something and adding to it mm-hmm. in a very positive way. Um, which, yeah, is really cool and something that. You don't get with, you know, a through hike.
1: Right. It's, yeah, you don't, you don't have that, the weight of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's not like, I wouldn't be like, yeah, I mean, it's a weight, but that's the weight is not like a bad thing. It's, Mm -hmm. It's, it's profound. Yeah. 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 It's and, not a weight of responsibility, I should say. Right, and
1: one of the things that you carry with you through that entire journey is this book for signatures, and I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote you back to you again.
0: <laughs> oh, good.
1: <laughs> um, but I but I really loved this because this is sort of a retrospect thing for you, like at that, at this moment, this is late in your book and this is a retrospect for you, but I really love both the words and the image that they created. And then with, I would love to see like the the actual physical of what I'm talking about here. So the your actual book, but yeah. um, your words are, once out of my hands, each page is now a snapshot of 88 people I met their personalities and moods captured forever in time and place. For the rest of the ride, I leafed through this burden, lingering over 88 moments that passed while I hoped for something better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was so strange because like the stamp book was the only, that was the only uh, thing that I had on a schedule. Like, I had to be at a temple before it closed so I could get the stamp book so I could move on, you know. Mm -hmm. If I I didn't get to the temple in time, I'd have to camp somewhere around there and then wake up the next morning. Um, But, yeah, once I finished, I don't know. I can't remember if I wrote it down, but, like, when I was leafing through, I literally could see the faces of each person who'd signed the book. Oh, really? Yeah. It was... Just. uh, Yeah, it it was something I wish I could put better words to it, but, you know, that that book had nine revisions. Me talking has barely (laughs) one. Yes. So. Yes, yes. Let's see. So here is one of my favorites. And also they put uh, little strips of news of used newspaper in as a blotter. Okay.
1: Um, hold on just a second. I'm going to put this on a different view so okay. people can see this big. Okay. There we go. All so right. it's so, on you.
0: This is the stamp book I had. Um, it has a photo or a drawing of the temple right here. And like, this is the calligraphy. So this is one where they had a lot of time. <laughs>
1: yes. That's a lot of calligraphy.
0: Yeah. So, The calligraphy is always the same, but it depends on when you get to the temple, because if there's a bus, uh, if there's a group of bus pilgrims coming in, it's like, it's just an assembly line. So like, this is another one that's very intricate. Yeah.
1: So, so the red, are those red stamps basically that they did? Yep. And then the calligraphy represents what? Uh,
0: The calligraphy is the name of the temple. Okay. All right. So, yeah, this one you can see was a little, this one's rushed. They ran out of ink right there. <laughs> Yeah. I just got kind of, ah, it, get out of here, white guy. I've got like 30 more of these to do.
1: And then on the other side is a picture of the temple itself. Mm-hmm. The, that yep. specific temple.
0: Yeah. Each temple entrance. Uh, so, yeah, I almost didn't. I almost didn't get this. Uh, my It was my sister who was like, I think, you know, it's worth the cost. You know, I think you'll get yes. it if you don't. Yeah. Here's another very rushed one. You know, you can see at the bottom. Like, yeah. Just did not care. Did not take the time to uh, ink up the stamp. Yeah. Which, you know, like I'm not blaming any of them for. If, I, if my job was just this. I'd be exhausted.
1: Well, it's Um, almost like as, as with what you said in your book, it's a, it's a, captures a moment in time of each person's personality, their mood, how their day went, how close they were to closing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's weird to have a document or like a, Artifact, memento, what, whatever you want to call it, that's such a record of your interaction with different people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just a photo and it's not just a. Yeah, this is the last one. I just really like this one.
1: Oh, wow. That's a very, that's a very exuberant calligraphy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really like that one. Um, but yeah, it's just so. Interesting to have this record of your interaction with somebody else that you never speak to, but it's such a, it's a individualized. Yeah. It's a document of the time I shared with one other person. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just very worth having.
1: I, I mean, grant you, this is in retrospect, knowing what this now is, but I cannot even believe that you were thinking about not having, not getting it, not doing it.
0: (laughs) Uh, I know (laughs) it's hard to both overstate how unprepared I was, but also, (laughs) but yeah, it's also just a, um, I didn't know what the pilgrimage was, you know, I didn't know what it would be. It was just sort of, <clears throat> it was just sort of this wacky idea I had. And, you know, like I literally was thinking like, oh, I'll probably, you know, get in karate matches with all of the monks to test our spirit. And, you know, some old guy will give me a sword. Cause he's like, ah, oh, you deserve it. And I'm like, totally, I'm awesome. And, uh, you know, and then, so that's kind of where the title came from where I had this idea of like, I'd be fighting monks and having this wild karate adventure. And then there was the harsh reality of something like burning mountain where I'm collapsing from dehydration. I'm scared. I'm in pain and I don't know what's coming next. And that is that that made the pilgrimage in the end. And I actually did get in a karate match with a priest, which was awesome. You did get your moment. I did get my moment. (laughs)
1: Well, and one of the things that we've kind of alluded to a few times in this conversation, which to me is a big part of the overall pilgrimage as well, is where the hell you're sleeping. Mm. Because there seem to sort of be places for you to sleep that were associated with or, or recognized as part of the pilgrimage. And then there's you sleeping in a toilet stall or under a bridge or.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so the pilgrimage is like the Camino. There are established little inns called Rio or Mish, uh, Mishakans. I can't remember the other name of them uh, that about 60 70 bucks a night breakfast and dinner available you got to get to them at a certain time but you get a little room you get a uh, you get a, a futon to sleep on and that is what that's where most people go you know especially the bus pilgrims and that's kind of the part of the economy of the Shikoku pilgrimage but me wanting to do it on the cheap uh, and having to do it on the cheap uh, I just camped out nearly every night um, as a walking pilgrim you occasionally get uh, these little lodgings called Zen Cognado, where you know you're either let in by a shop owner or uh, someone attempt someone at the temple and it's anything from you know a, a little extra room uh, you know kind of I guess what'd be called a mother-in-law, apartment here or you know it's a garage uh or just uh you know a room underneath the temple but for the most part yeah i camped out every night there's um these things called rest huts which is basically like a roof a bench and a uh, concrete pad and you can set up your tent there but if there's not one near you Uh, you are setting up anywhere. I'd set up in a bus stop. I'd set up on a lawn. Uh, Yeah, one night I slept in a toilet stall. That wasn't, that's its own adventure. Um, But yeah, it's it's perfectly reasonable to camp. And I think the Shikoku, the people of Shikoku just kind of understand, like if a tent's going (laughs) up, it's like, yep, there's another pilgrim.
1: So, so the people of the government of Shikoku just, I mean, let you sort of put up your tent wherever, wherever you could find space, so to speak.
0: I mean, you know, be respectful about it. Like, don't set up in anyone's, like, yard or, I don't know, in front of a place of business. But for the most part, yeah. I mean, you, Hmm. you can set up on a lawn. You can set up, um, you know, next to a business on like a concrete pad or a, uh, like a little gravel area. I mean, there's a lot of places to sleep, but the, um, the rest huts are where everyone wants to stay because sometimes, uh, the locals will put out a little cooler with like, you know, soda in it or iced coffee. And it's just like, I, I was roughing it hard on the pilgrimage. So any little bit of like free kindness. Oh my God. Yeah. Like an iced coffee in the morning, just. Major day. Nothing better.
1: Well, it was funny because I'm sure it wasn't funny to you at the time, but you had the map to get you from, From temple to temple, you were, but you couldn't necessarily read the signs.
0: I mean, there were, there are these bollards, uh, like little posts, uh, that are, some are stone, some are wood, and they have like the number of the temple in, you know, the Western number and an arrow, but that's about it. And so you'd come to a crossroads and hopefully there'd be one of those. And if you're in a city, there are also these little oval stickers with cartoon henrow on them. And so if you saw those on like a stop sign or like uh, a lamppost, you're like, all right, I'm going the right way. <laughs> I'm following the cartoon. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but the other two big things that that seem to play out for your entire Uh, journey was finding some place to sleep each night
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and food finding food
0: yeah I could not find food uh, especially at the beginning I think I lost like 20 30 pounds in my first two weeks Um, and that was like looking back on it I think that was just a matter of me not knowing how to ask like where's a grocery store or taking the time to just wander around any of the cities, but there just didn't seem to be anywhere that had actual food. I mean, if I saw like uh, if I saw like especially in the start in Tokushima, I mean some nights my dinner was squid dried squid and two bananas. <laughs> and that's just like what that's just like what was in a little shop that I could eat. Um and I'm sure that the people in those towns like had a grocery store or something. I mean, they couldn't have all been harvesting rice for all their meals, but I just couldn't find anything. So I was constantly starving. Uh especially and especially like it was so hot and the hiker hunger only kicks in after two weeks. So I'm burning like probably five to 6,000 calories and maybe putting two back in. And so, yeah, it was like that, that alone probably made it a lot harder to navigate because my brain wasn't getting any energy to it. (laughs) It was all going to my legs.
1: Yeah. Um, Did you like with the food, because on a, an American traditional through hike, you shop, you get food, you put it in your pack, and then you have that for the next however many days, and you have yeah. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But it didn't seem like you had that going for you.
0: Yeah. It just I was told that there'd just be food, you know, convenience stores called kombines everywhere. And by the time I got out of Tokushima and kind of further into Kochi, that was the case. Um but yeah, since I'd never been on a thru-hike, I don't think I knew you could bring days of food with you. <laughs> I think I just thought like, yeah, it's, you know, every every spot will have like a gas station. I'll just get food there. It turns out that gas stations don't have food in Japan. And like, I think I realized later too, it's the same with English. Like I expected so many people to speak English But that would be like a Spanish person coming to, like, I don't know, America and expecting all of us to speak fluent Spanish just because we learned it in high school. Mm -hmm. Because I knew the JET program had been out there and that they're, like, English private schools, but it's rural Japan. And, like, like, if a Spanish person came up to me after high school in desperate need of help. I think the only thing I could say to them in Spanish was like, I like your shoes. Did you buy them at the shoe store? Is that to the left or the right of the library? Like, yeah. like I don't, I don't know why I was expecting the Japanese people to do that. And the, the other funny thing is like, I actually spoke pretty decent Spanish at that point. Cause I'd lived in Spain for a little bit. And so I'd have this weird thing in my mind where I'd, they weren't, they didn't understand English and I'd switch to Spanish for like just automatically. And then in my brain, I had this like thought that I'm is completely wrong, but I was like, God damn it. Why don't you speak Spanish? (laughs) 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 Oh,
1: Yeah, just... Uh, just <laughs> I don't even am- know what to say to that.
0: <laughs> I know. I was just ugly Americaning left and right. And, like, I never got mad at them about it. Like, I, I wasn't an asshole. But it just, like, in my head, I was so unprepared that I was just like, yeah, of course they'll speak English. It's Japan. Like, why wouldn't everyone speak my language?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. I and know. But a lot of that was also... You know, when you can't speak to anyone, you spend a lot of your time with yourself. And that's, I think, valuable time, too. Yeah. Even if it's not fun time.
1: No. Well, and particularly since you chose not to bring with you distractions, essentially. Um, Yeah. and, And that was both on the level of something like to listen to and that kind of thing. But you also weren't allowing yourself... Uh, alcohol, and there was something else as well. I'm trying to remember what it was.
0: Uh, I think it was no alcohol. I had to walk every step. Um, No electronics besides a camera and a voice recorder for my journal. And uh, journal every night. Okay.
1: But, yeah, I mean, you, you slimmed it down. So you were stuck with nobody but you. On this on this path,
0: yeah, and it like I when I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, I'm very happy that I had like music and distraction because it's so long. But I also will never like I'll always appreciate that I was stuck with myself on Shikoku. I feel like that's such a valuable experience, and I part of me always wishes that I'd done more of that on my other hikes because it's once you force yourself to be present, especially in the modern era where there are so many distractions at all times, uh, it is wild. Like I was meditating every day and I went through a couple of times, something that I can only describe as completely sober, lucid mushroom trip where like, I suddenly everything came into focus, everything was extra three dimensional. And I just felt this connection to the ground and to my surroundings, that seemed like I was looking at everything almost from above. And that was only from meditation. And uh yeah, I'd be it'd be rad if I could still do that.
1: Uh, you just need to walk another 750 miles.
0: Oh and... yeah, easy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kind of devolve into a specific moment that just fascinated me. Cause I've never heard of it before. I'm sure there's probably other people who are listening to this who have, but the very concept of it just fascinated me. Um, And that was the cormorant fishing.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Can you talk about like what that is? Because it's not just fishing (laughs) with the hook.
0: So cormorant fishing is this very traditional way to catch fish where they have these uh, cormorants, a seabird and they have them on leashes and they just, chuck them in the water and the cormorants like swim underneath and snatch fish and then they reel them back in on the leash and pull the fish out of their jaws so it's kind of like the aquatic version of those mongolian eagle hunters yeah and that's and and they're in these like a they're in uh, because I think it's kind of a tourist attraction thing. They uh, are in these boats with like lanterns on the front and dressed in traditional garb. It's really cool.
1: I feel like watching that happen. I mean, just in general, I can literally sit at the beach and watch pelicans diving for for fish and coming up and and doing all of that. I can only imagine how long I could sit there and watch cormorants fishing. <laughs>
0: again it's super wild and then like it's also funny because it feels like the cormorants are like this time he'll let me keep it
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I guess there is that that other side of the coin so (laughs) to speak (laughs) and and it makes me also think and this is just a random stray thought but it makes because every once in a while like you hear about something or see something and you're like I wonder what the first person who ever tried this was thinking.
0: Mm. Like,
1: how did this come to be?
0: You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because it's like, man, those cormorants are really successful at this. I wonder if they're employable. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> and you could, yeah, I just, it fascinates me. Like that very concept of of the inception of it
0: all. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like the first person who saw a cow and was like, I bet I could drink that milk. Mm -hmm. Or the first person who said, I could eat this egg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I always, I'm kind of envious of the first person who thought of like cooking meat on a fire. I bet that guy was a legend in his (laughs) tribe for like (laughs) the rest of his life. Yeah. They probably named that after him. Definitely. There was
1: a special grilling that was named mm-hmm. after him. <laughs> but speaking of food, one of the things that you also mentioned in your book that intrigued me so much is the Kit Kats.
0: Yeah. So in Kit- uh, I was going to say Kit Kats
1: in America are boring in comparison.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. So like, so uh, in Japan, uh, Kitakatsu means uh, good luck. And so parents started buying Kit Kats uh, for their children as sort of a good luck treat before they went and took tests. And because, you know, the Japanese just tend to focus in on certain things and just make a subculture out of it, and also because Kit Kat bars are not that good, they've developed this just spectrum. Of Kit Kat flavors, like there's green tea, there's like Earl Grey tea, there's melon, there's strawberry, there's kiwi, there's and they're making new ones all the time. And they're just the most delicious, creamy, amazing treats that have ever been like made. They're one of the best tasting chocolates I've ever had. And you
1: still have the taste of the chocolate, right? Yeah. And then it's just that other flavor kind of on top of it or.
0: Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's the, like, it's the, for like the milk tea one, which is my favorite. uh, It's like this creamy Earl gray. So it's kind of like a white chocolate mixed with just like extra creamy black tea and it was just, I mean, I think everything tasted better because I was starving. Uh, There's that. Yeah, the kit, the kit Kats, and the Kit Kats were just the one of the cool little uh, subcultures I discovered there or like little cultural treats. And so every time I saw a, uh, a um, vending machine, I got a little pumped because it might have a new flavor of Kit Kat I hadn't tried. <laughs>
1: That became part of the pilgrimage to see how many different flavors you could try.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but it makes me it definitely makes me want to search out a Japanese market here because I'm in L.A., um, but search out a Japanese market and see if they've got them like the different flavors.
0: They have a couple of them. I've seen them at like uh, a couple of the Asian markets here in Washington, but I still can't find milk tea. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lobby for it. I know. Right. Right.
1: And, and speaking of vending machines, there was one particular vending machine that was like the piece de resistance of all Mm. vending machines.
0: Oh, the underpants vending machine? Underpants vending machine. (laughs) I know. I felt so lucky. I, that was one of those things I didn't know, I heard about, but I was like, that's not real. Like, there's no way that vending machines sell ladies underwear in Japan for like perverts most likely, but yeah. Yeah. I managed to find one. And, uh, you know what? They were reasonably priced. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, again, fascinates the whole concept fascinates me because it wasn't just selling under ladies underwear. It was selling a couple of other things as well. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just but don't remember what you, they were. You know what I mean? Either. I think you've read the book more, uh, <laughs> more recently than I have. Probably, um, yeah. I'm uh, I'm writing another one, so sorry if I'm not able to like recall no all the details.
1: the The people who are listening will have to oh, read condoms. the book.
0: I think they were selling condoms too, and I swear to God, a dildo. I think there was a dildo in there.
1: So, so the people who are listening to this podcast now have to read the book in order to get the act the accurate uh, tally of what was in that vending machine.
0: Yes, be sure if you buy the book for nothing else got to, you got to buy it for the weird vending machine I found. Yeah. Uh, but um, it,
1: it feels like that's all though. Kind of part of the experience of the pilgrimage is both the be here now, but also the being open to random moments, random things that are happening to you at any given moment.
0: Yeah, and that was the the fun of it, you know, the fact that you know, like when you're when you and I I'm talking about the difference between this and through hiking, but Mm -hmm. I love through hiking. Through hiking is incredible for me. So never think I'm discounting how great it is. But yeah, one of the cool things about the Shikoku pilgrimage and maybe any pilgrimage is there's just such a different so many more things could happen on any given day you know you could have an encounter with somebody but you can also see something cultural you could also find something you'd never seen before um you know you and yeah it just it's what kind of the excitement was because it's the excitement of being in a foreign city where you're never sure what's around the next corner but it's also the excitement of being out in the rice fields and being in this ancient land. And yeah, so it it really was a matter of just being open and being curious at all times.
1: And speaking of one of those moments, um, I love your description of it in the book, but I love that you add this picture to <laughs> your book as well and you know ex- you probably I know ex- exactly yeah, I know
0: exactly what that is <laughs> that was bizarre which is this essentially oh the 500 rock i thought you were, were you- gonna i thought you were gonna say when i found myself on a cigarette vending machine
1: oh well there's that too but for yeah, right now so, we'll start with the 500
0: oh yeah the so the 500 rock so those are the 500 original followers of the buddha and when i I was uh, at a mountaintop temple and I had done the prayers and was kind of wandering around. And I stepped into this courtyard and there's 500 different life-size statues. Each of which are like grotesquely uh, over Like all of the features are different mm-hmm. and they're all different emotions and there's warriors and drunks and people with different animals. And it was just so strange and magical to walk through this sculpture garden of all of these, and just with no idea what they were, but still in this weird, mysterious place that forever, that I knew I would never fully understand but still just seemed so profound in its own way. And yeah, finding the Rakan was wild. It was wild to me. Cause
1: you weren't expecting to find them. You were looking for them.
0: No context for what they were.
1: And it was really very random that it's almost like one of those things where you're going in one direction, you turn your head to look a different direction and it's like, Ah, (laughs) there it is, you know?
0: Yeah. And it was, there was always more that the pilgrimage had to offer. And I think, you know, and times like seeing the rock on were moments where it was just like, this thing is so much bigger and more fascinating than I'll ever fully get. But there was also that feeling of like, so I need to just appreciate and feel the wonder of it as it is. Because, yeah, because I'm here now. And while I wish I could have a greater understanding at the moment, I have to just live with the understanding I have at the moment and accept it. Would
1: you ever think of doing it again?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, with If I had the time and the money, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I think it would be so fascinating now that I actually can hike and now that I actually know everything about it to just see what else I can gain from it. What would you do differently? Uh, so many things. <laughs> uh, How much think, time do you have? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, to start off, I would pick a better shoe choice. Um, Something for anyone who's planning on doing this to know is 90% of it's on concrete. And so you're better off. Don't get a shoe with a rock plate for certain. Do not get a shoe with a metal rock plate. Uh, Get comfortable walking shoes that will last. Um, I would go in the, fall or the spring. I would not go in the summer because it's just too hot and too humid. Um, I do a lot more reading. I definitely read my book again uh, <laughs> before going because I include so much cool uh, history and culture in it as well. Yeah. Um, and I think I would walk, I would do like 15 miles a day. I don't think I do 18 to 20. I, uh, I was, I feel like I was rushing it because you know, I was in so much pain, I just wanted it to be over faster. But I would definitely take a lot more time. And I would do a bit more research to which cultural festivals are going on. Because I think it'd be cool to like, see the Adori Festival or like uh, a cherry blossom festival. And I would bring extra money for ramen, because the ramen was incredible. I've never had anything that good. Like the ramen here is okay, but man, it's like American chocolate versus like German or British chocolate. You know, it's once the real stuff, once you've had the real stuff, yeah, or German beer versus like Budweiser. Yeah. Once you've had the
1: real, I bet it's hard to go back to uh, the so imitation.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but it's oof. The broth alone is just incredible. But I'm not a food writer, so that's as far as I can go with it.
1: (laughs) You don't have all of the adjectives to describe it.
0: Yeah, I have good and real good and more, please. I think that's uh, (laughs) that's the extent of uh, my guest hosting on Chopped. (laughs)
1: Because we, there wasn't other than the fact that your feet were killing you, literally. um, There wasn't any. Thing, there wasn't any sort of pressure on you to have to finish at a certain time or to speed through things or anything like that, right?
0: No. I mean, I uh, actually finished it a lot faster than I thought, so I had to change my flight a little earlier. Um, but no, there was, there's no real pressure to hurry. Uh, I think I just kind of put that on myself because it becomes – it's hard not to make it a stamp race. Uh, I think, you know, I just, ha- I still had a lot of competition in me because, you know, I was still doing uh, a competitive martial art. But, yeah, I think I, uh, I think taking more time at each temple would have been a good thing as well. You know, just really doing it as more of a contemplative walk. And I don't know, maybe later in life, I'll go back and just do it again, Slowed down, really appreciated it a bit more.
1: I, I was laughing as you're describing, because at a certain point you meet a couple of other people who are English speaking. And I think one of them was Elizabeth, who was doing the contemplative mm-hmm. walk Yeah, and she had convinced you to, to slow down a little bit. Um, but I was laughing that you would always, you would get someplace and you would see these people who were going slower Ahead of you still, and you're like, how?
0: Yeah, I, I still don't <laughs> get that. <laughs> they they had warp whistles or something, because like I would try to slow down, and then like honestly, I think that cigarettes are like performance enhancing drugs for the Japanese, <laughs> because like so many of them were puffing away, and they'd just be like leaving me in the dust. And I I, I still have no explanation. It, it was the weirdest thing ever. But yeah, just slow and contemplative, I guess, wins the race.
1: Yeah. Because, I mean, that's a, I hadn't thought of that because I guess I was very much focused on the pilgrimage, the walk side of it. But, you know, in the States, when somebody's doing, when somebody, when a foreigner comes in to do like the PCT, the CDT, or the AT, there's that six-month window that they've got to get done. And there's so many miles to do. And they feel that push the whole time. But with mm-hmm. some, only 750 miles you have time to stop and smell the roses, so to speak and enjoy the, the towns and you say the, the festivals and the other things that are also going on in these places that you're passing through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think I would have taken more time uh, going to the onsens, which are Japanese spas that were amazing and just like lifesavers. Sometimes like, I wish we had spa culture in the U S like that. Um, yeah, I, I think that it, it's, it should be a walk to be done contemplatively. Um, and if I was a little older and more mature, uh, I think that's how I would have taken it. But, and, you know, in more comfort, Mm -hmm. um, with different shoes with different, yeah. God, if I had different shoes.
1: Well, and that was part of also a, a, a thing or it was, it became even a bigger thing, you know, making the wrong shoe choice is one thing, but when you're in a country that does not have feet, the size of yours, you get stuck with your choices, basically.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, I was very stuck with my choices. Uh, and I don't know. It's, uh, it's always, it's hard not to think like what you would do differently mm-hmm. uh, the next time you'd go. Um, but it also, I don't know. I kind of have to accept that because I did the pilgrimage in the way I did, I got the lessons that I got, which were how I, you know, learned a better way to hike, say the Pacific crest trail, mm-hmm. uh, which I would also do differently if I had the <laughs> chance to do it again. So it never ends.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like, not to, to uh, pull out a trope, but the trail provides the lessons you need at that moment in your life. So going yep. back and doing it again, it's going to be a different experience because you're a different person. You're at a different point in your life.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like, even before I went on the pilgrimage, uh, it turned out there was a Shingon Buddhist temple uh, near where I was living in Seattle. And the guy told me, like, it's the journey you need before I left. And I was like, yeah, I really need an old guy to give me a sword. You're right. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, it's, um, I think that's, and and that's something that um, I tried to put in the book and something that I've carried with me is when you finish journeys like this, Sometimes the answers aren't exactly clear as to what it meant and, you know, what you got out of it. And I hope that people who are in that gray area of not getting the cinematic, like, I don't know, you know, in Wild where she throws the shoe or whatever, you know, when you're not like sitting there crying as, you know, all of the epiphanies come at once. <laughs> like Only it were that uh, easy. I know, Right. It's like, don't, don't get discouraged. You know, don't think like, oh, it was a failure because every time you go on a hike, like the, the answers are there for you. Like the, they're provided, but the trail, no trail works a miracle. You know, you need to put them together when you get back. And, you know, that's why if you take nothing away from this, keep a journal. Like whenever you go on a journey keep a journal and make it as detailed as you can because it's, you will look back on your journal years later and learn so much about where you are now. Yeah. The trail they, opens you up. Yeah. Yeah. It opens you up and it give it, it's up to you to put the answers together, but they're there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should?
0: Um, I mean, let's see, we could talk about, uh, fighting the priest. We could talk about, um, uh, I don't know. Sorry. I mean, I I hate to say it, but you read the book more recently (laughs) than I have. Are there any other questions that you have?
1: There there are a couple of things, but let's talk about fighting the priest really quick.
0: Yeah. Okay. No, um, if you want to go on to the other things, let's do that. We'll save we'll save it for the end.
1: Okay. We'll save that for the end then. Um I wanted to talk a little bit about Taylor.
0: Oh yeah. So um yeah, just not to screw it up. His name is Jamie. I just Oh because his yeah, I know. Because his family members were dead, and I didn't know the legalities, I just didn't use his name in the book. But yeah, his name was Jamie Bernard.
1: Okay. So I wanted to talk about Jamie a little bit. Sure. Because that became quite a defining moment for you on the pilgrimage, as well as once you got home again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was my first, uh, that was my first suicide yeah. that, uh, I dealt with, uh, and I wish it was the last one. Uh, unfortunately, if God, I wish that was even the hardest one. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk about suicide. Well,
1: talk about suicide, but also depression, but also,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I mean, cause one of the things that you also had to do through the course of your pilgrimage, is forgive yourself for a feeling of not being there, of of not being enough to potentially keep him there, but knowing why he did it, because you guys were so such good friends.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, It's tough. Something I've learned uh, about suicide is that a lot of people believe that it's almost an accident. You know, like they imagine that this person was just standing too close to a window and tripped. You know, it was just sort of one bad day or one bad moment. And that they're, you know, as they're falling, they're reaching out. And if you can just race forward and just catch their hand and you'll pull them back you know, and that it was up to you. But a lot of the time, they're not facing you. They're turned away and they're not, they didn't trip out of a window. They walked up to it and they jumped. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, one of the, yeah, one of the things was that Jamie had been a childhood friend of mine And we'd grown up together and been like each other's best friends and then sort of grown apart. And one of the reasons was we were both dealing with depression in different ways. And I, at that point, didn't have the emotional bandwidth to help him. And when we finally got back together and were able to um, reconnect You know, I was like, cool, I can, you know, be more here for him when I get back. And then he, uh, things got too much for him due to family issues, and he took his own life. And the guilt of that was, it took a while to process, because it's kind of hard, guilt and grief are very personal to each experience and very personal to each person. And so no one can really, people can tell you like the basics of it, but it's kind of up to you every time to figure your own way through it. And for me, like a lot of the, when I learned that he killed himself, I remember like the world shifted, like there was an earthquake and just, I remember everything tilting to the side. And then every memory I had with him just flashed back all at once. and. You know, I cried about it, but then I couldn't really do anything. So I just continued the pilgrimage. You know, flying back wasn't going to make a difference. And getting back, there was just, I'd start crying at random times and I couldn't figure out where the, what this was because, you know, he'd been my best friend for a decade of our lives, but it also been almost a decade since we'd really hung out and been close. So you know, there were a lot closer people in my life that I would think, you know, would be more upsetting to me. Uh, And really what it came down to, I realized at his wake was his girlfriend saying, oh yeah, you know, uh, Jamie talked about you guys a lot. And me realizing that I'd kind of forgotten about him, you know, not, not who he was, you know, but, you know, because I saw him every year at his father's holiday party, but kind of what he meant to me and what those 10 years of our friendship had meant and how I'd grown as a person because of it, you know, little and big things. And so, yeah, so it was sort of realizing that all we leave to each other are memories of each other. And so I wanted to start leaving better memories to certain people, including my family. So that caused a lot of reconciliation. Um, but yeah, that uh, suicide's tough and I've dealt with chronic depression most of my life. So it's not, I never question why people do it. Uh, to me, it's at this point, I feel like it's more of a stroke you know just someone's brain killed them mm. but you know it's also hard to it's hard to think of it that way because it seems so much like a choice yeah and i'm not certain that it is i mean in any more than addiction's a choice you know mhm yeah like it's, it's your brain demanding you do something and, you know, it's hard to fight against your own brain.
1: Yeah. How were, how was you, were you on the pilgrimage? Like with your depression, because I mean, you're very isolated because you don't speak English. You don't speak Japanese. The nature of the pilgrimage in general is going to have you be an kind of isolated lots of time in your head
0: um the i don't remember the depression being too bad because the anxiety was so bad
1: (laughs) (laughs) one outweighed the other
0: yeah exactly it's like why think about how i failed everyone i know when i'm already like oh god is there another burning mountain coming up or am i going to get charged by a boar again
1: (laughs) oh yes the boars
0: yeah, t- it takes your mind off of things. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, honestly, the the depression was pretty backseated because, um, which I think happens on a lot of through hikes, which is some of the beauty of hiking, yeah. is that you are so focused on everything else that there's not a lot of room for bullshit. You know, like the Thank mistakes God. you make. Yeah. The mistakes you make while you're hiking have real consequences. And so it kind of filters out a lot of the, you know, low level anxieties that just come from, you know, living in especially American society.
1: Where can people find you if they have further questions or should need to find your book uh, or want to follow your continuing adventures?
0: Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, or uh, yeah, Instagram at Barack Outdoors. B as in boy, A R A C H Outdoors. Um, I will have a new website up at some point, but uh, you know, don't hold your breath. I'm kind of busy on stuff, uh, and you can find my book on Amazon. Uh, Bur- fighting monks and burning mountains misadventures on a buddhist pilgrimage and that'll be an ebook audiobook and print
1: Beautiful. so
0: uh if you thought man i could really i could really use eight more hours of this voice <laughs> uh, get the audiobook <laughs> oh so you read your own book huh i did yeah i, know I love it. it i love it yeah um
1: my my final question of basically most of these podcasts is what is the moment? Like when you, when somebody asks you about the pilgrimage, what is the moment that sort of flashes into your mind first that, that has, (laughs) I guess we could actually go with you for two, two sides, both the, the painful memory that flashes into your mind first, but also the joyous Grateful memory that flashes into your
0: mind first. Uh man. So, uh, Burning Mountain was such an extended horror of panic. But I think one of the most painful moments. Uh, it was I was taught like you'll anyone who reads the book, you'll know how messed up my feet were. But there was this one day where I think it was, it was Rosh Hashanah and I'd called my dad and we were just talking back and forth and I'm just lying and saying like, (laughs) yeah, the pilgrimage is going great. It's going fantastic. Uh, and I'd switched to sandals because my feet were so blistered up in between the toes. I just like, it was more painful to walk on sandals, but it blistered up less. And so I'm telling my dad, I'm just lying to my dad, like, yep, getting so much out of this, definitely worth uh, spending most of my savings on. And then I hung up the phone and turned around and started walking. And my bruised up, blistered pinky toe just slammed right into my walking staff. And I had to bend over because I was swearing so hard. I ran out of breath. Oh, (laughs) So that was the most painful. Um, the moment I always come back to is getting is having that karate match on a mountaintop at temple at dusk with the other priest, which was just a moment of such sheer. This is what I wanted. After thank you, universe. Yeah, after thirty days of. You know, the boar, the monkeys, which also were pretty scary, you know, uh, sleeping in a toilet stall all night because of heat exhaustion, breaking part of an ancient temple, getting a leg infection, finding out Jamie'd killed himself, and just going on and moving on and being like, there's got to be something else to this pilgrimage. There is something. Just keep going. And then just a random slew of circumstances of just me and a priest mutually agreeing to square off and get into a karate match, like I'd always wanted, was just this moment of like, look, I have to be a very beloved husband and a real great father to write that on my tombstone instead of karate match with a priest on a mountaintop. Like, that's what I want to be remembered for.
1: (laughs) As they say, fighting monks,
0: Yep, fighting monks and past those burning mountains.
1: A huge thank you to Paul for sharing his stories from the trail, and Maya Wynn for the use of the song, Try Again. If you want to see our conversation, we now also have a video version of this podcast on our website at hiking-through.com, or you can go directly to the brand new Hiking Through channel on YouTube. On next week's episode, I'm talking with Frosty, known off-trail as Jess Rochelle, about her 2020 PCT thru-hike. I hope that this conversation, these conversations, inspire you to get out there and have a few hiker-trash moments of your own. I'll see you on the trail.